Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Jessa Zimmerman is a licensed couples counselor and nationally certified sex therapist. She works in private practice in Seattle, Washington, so she's just a southern neighbor of mine. Over the course of her career, she's focused almost exclusively on helping couples with their emotional and sexual intimacy. In her years of clinical experience, Zimmerman has treated hundreds of couples who have struggled to feel sexual desire and fulfillment. Her clients describe having a good relationship in other ways, but their sex life has become difficult to the point that they start to avoid sex. These are people who love each other but are struggling to have sex life they both enjoy. She specializes in helping these couples who find that sex has become stressful, negative, disappointing, or pressured. She educates coaches and supports people as they go through her four-pillar experiential process that allows them real-world practice in changing their relationship and their sex life, guiding them to become easily intimate. Welcome. Thanks for being here. I'm so glad to be here. This is perfect for my podcast. And you have a podcast too. So <laughs> I do. Like, and we'll link that in the show notes because if you, you know, if you like mine, you'll like hers. <laughs> we'll talk about the Can same thing. Can never hear enough about Can sex. Can never hear right? enough about the problems people have with sex and how to make it fun. Right. So how, let's dive in. How do, if, if somebody's like, how do people become easily intimate? What does easily intimate mean? And, and how do, how do you get there? Gosh, it's a small question, but it's a big answer, I think. I think of easily intimate as where sex is no longer causing any strain. It's not the elephant in the room. It's not draining any of your energy. You're not worried about it. It's not stressful. You know, it's just fun. And part of that happens by sort of redefining what sex even is. Like the problem is people have so many expectations about how desire is supposed to work, how sex is supposed to go, what their body's supposed to do, how this whole thing's supposed to work, how natural you know it feels or how spontaneous it feels, all these things. And then when it doesn't live up to that, that creates stress. Isn't it crazy how serious people take sex? Yeah, <laughs> it is play. I mean, I get it. In some ways, it's serious. It's, it's so, so serious. It, I mean, it's like profound or it can be, you know, it can also just be silly, but it's significant. I think it's important, but it doesn't have to be heavy. It doesn't have to be this big deal. And it certainly shouldn't feel like you could fail it. That, you know, I think that's like my overarching message is people need to understand that if you really wrap your mind around this, you cannot fail at sex. Oh, what a good message. (laughs) And if you can get that, if you can shift your thinking to that, then it's a matter of practicing, you know, integrating those ideas. And then it's like, oh yeah, we can't fail. This whole thing is just fun. That is the best message ever. And the podcast is done. That's all you needed to to hear today. You can't fail. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) That's so awesome. How do you think people kind of get into this? Like, I almost want to call it like a heaviness. Like they get into the heaviness of like, it's not worth it or it's hard. Like, is it just repeatedly thinking they're failures or repeatedly like expectation mismatch? What do you think is going on? Yeah, I think it's about it. I think it all starts with expectations. We are taught things about sex, whether that's explicitly taught, you know, sex is sinful or something like that, or just absorb the messages of the culture and the media, right? So we have these ideas about how sex, what is sex? How is it supposed to go? What are we supposed to feel? What's our body supposed to do? What's our partner supposed to do? Whatever. And then those are all fantasies. I mean, it's all, you know, unrealistic. It's not based in anything. So then when our experiences don't match that, often enough, 
it starts to feel like we're failing. It starts to feel like a big deal. What's the problem? There's a lot of worry about, am I broken? Does this mean I'm with the wrong person? Because if I were the right person, it should just work. Like there's all this worry and fear that starts to come in. And then of course that starts to feel heavy, really heavy. I mean, devastating to, for some people, right? And then, totally. and it makes sense. And this is part of what I describe in the book for the, the sexual avoidance cycle, something I talk about. If you're having negative feelings about something and if you come out feeling worse or you're risking a sense of failure or feeling inadequate, <laughs> why would you be eager to do this thing, right? This is why people start to avoid sex. 100%. Dude, I yeah. think in talking about that, Hollywood messes us up. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Like the penis and vagina 30 second to mutual orgasm scenario is messing us up. Yes. Yes. And then you add on something like pornography, which is meant to accentuate certain things, certain eroticism. And that's totally unrealistic. That's all fantasy. Yeah. But I almost think TV and movies are worse because they're seeming to portray real life and real relationships. But yes. very rarely do they really hit the nail on the head when it comes to sex. Totally. And even like now, now that I'm thinking about it, like music like music portraying desire as this like crazy overtaking all consuming you have it and I'm like wow even music is messing us up in this whole you know that you're supposed to be spontaneously desiring all the time right right and you know and some people I mean it's one of the core things people need to understand is there's two kinds of desire one of them feels like that one of them feels like hunger or, or, you know, you want it in the moment you're thinking about it, you're spontaneously interested, but there's also plenty of people that don't feel that or rarely, maybe never, but they can feel desire if they get going. And if they understand what they need and they get that and their body starts to respond, they start to get turned on. It's like, Oh, now I'd actually kind of like sex, you know, totally. but people that's not portrayed anywhere really. And so people think they're broken. Yeah, totally. And I think it not messy, but like, we're not telling women to have sex when they don't want to have sex. We're telling them to like get going because that's where the desire comes from as a very natural response. Right, right. One of the things I say to clients a lot, another one of my overarching messages, I'm not trying to get anybody to have sex. I'm trying to help people want as much sex as they might be able to want. It's like, what's that potential we have? And that involves getting obstacles out of the way and it involves cultivating our own sense of what's pleasurable to us and what we need in our relationship, right? So it's additive in terms of the good stuff, but it's also about let's look at the blockers that are, that are there. I love it. You have a video on Instagram that it's, it's titled No Libido, No Problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that goes into this of like, it's, it's okay. Don't let that be the reason that you're not having fun or spending time together or being intimate. Right. This idea that, and almost everybody that comes into my, like my office or even into my course thinks they're broken because they don't have libido. I have no sex drive. I could, you know, plenty of people have said to me, gosh, if it were up to me, I could go the whole rest of my life without sex and be just fine. They just don't have any intrinsic urge for it. And they don't, they don't know that that's normal. It's common. Lots of people have that experience. So then it's about, can I catch fire? Is there, you know, could we do stuff and start? And all of a sudden, now I want sex. That's so, so important. And both people in a partnership, often these people are par paired with somebody that does have libido, right? Both people need to understand that this isn't broken. Both totally. people need to approach this way more open-ended, what I call just sort of a maybe, instead of yes, we're having sex or no, we're not. Most of it's maybe in this scenario. I don't know if I'm going to, if my engine's going to turn over, I don't know if I'm going to get interested, you know, but let's start and see what happens. And it has to be okay either way. Yeah. And it's like, 
is it okay to not like have an A plus every single time? Like it's fine. You spent time together. Maybe you laughed. You tried something new. Like valuing that as a ex- good experience to have, I think is would be an improvement. Right. Absolutely. Women take it on themselves too. Like they're just like, well, my desire, my libido doesn't match my partner, so I'm the broken one. Like who said? Stop taking that one on. Yeah, you don't need the extra guilt. Well, and first I should say, it's not all women that have this experience. I mean, this will happen in a same-sex relationship or, you know, certainly men can be the lower desire person or have responsive desire. But often both people think the lower desire person is the identified patient. That's the one with the problem. They both come in often thinking that person is broken. And that's one of the first things we have to take apart. It's no, you're not broken. This is normal. (laughs) Do you know where that comes from? Well, again, this idea that we're supposed to feel desire. We have this concept that that's the only way. That's what desire is. That's what it should look like. I should have the strong libido. It's like, no, that's not true. That's not how it works. Uh, Talk about, because I love this topic and kind of taking the blame off of the low desire individual, that a lot of low desire is just desire discrepancy. Yeah. I mean, there's always desire discrepancy, right? At least over time, because why would any two people want exactly the same amount of sex, right? So there is always a higher desire and a lower desire person. And so it's not about, there is no amount of desire that anyone should have. So there's not one that's too high and there's not one that's too low. But you know, the tricky thing with a lower desire person is often there really are obstacles, Part of it is understanding they might have this responsive desire, but there may be other things in their way. Can you bring some of those up? Well, I mean, oh my gosh, health issues, children, job stress, relationship issues, body image, COVID stress, (laughs) economic strain. I mean, there's so many things. Yeah. Relationship discord. Oh yeah. Like I'm doing the majority of the housework and now you want to have sex? How about making me feel broken because I don't have as much desire as you? That's a blocker, right? There's so many obstacles that we kind of have to discuss and eliminate or adapt to or what, you know, because some you can't get rid of your kids, right? Some things aren't, you can't just get rid of all the obstacles, but maybe, you know, maybe you can accommodate them differently. And then do we know enough about what would invite somebody into that space and what they would need to potentially get aroused and interested So just because somebody shows up with a certain level of desire doesn't mean that that's their whole potential. That's what we're trying to explore. It's what's the different, what their potential really is. If we move stuff in the way and we understood what they needed. I was listening, I was doing some research for the book yesterday and now I'm going to, now I'm spontaneously trying to think of this. The woman who had you, not you personally, maybe you had you over and you were naked and she taught you how to have an orgasm and she died this past year. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, Betty Dodson. Betty Dodson. So I was on Betty Dodson. Thank you. See, this is why it's good to podcast with friends who are in the (laughs) the field. (laughs) Everybody listening is like, nope, don't know who Betty Dodson is. So Betty Dodson is this pioneer on female orgasms. So I was on her website yesterday and she kind of like, here I am trying to like make women feel better and have more orgasms and like be equal. And she like blew it out of the water last night because on her website, she's like, screw that. Women have way more potential than men do. Like way more. Their whole body is an erogenous zone. They can take a long time and have multiple. Why are we even just trying to be equal? We should be shooting for this moon. And I was like, thank you, Betty. I forgot. <laughs> well, and also I don't want to judge everything by orgasm, right? It's not, I mean, I, I sort of say to people, I want everybody to have the ability to have an orgasm if they want one, but that's not the only reason to have sex. That is not the, oh, we hit the goal now we can stop, right? It's about what does each person want to get out of it? Mm-hmm. 
And sometimes yeah. you want an orgasm. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you want multiple. I mean, it's like, what's, what's possible? And then what do you want for each person? Yeah. And that research where they looked at why do women have sex, like having an orgasm is not actually one of the top reasons that women have sex. Yeah. And again, I, you know, part of me wonders, well, is that because there's such an orgasm gap that women haven't had an, you know, it's not been enough a part of some, somebody's experience that that would be motivating. But I do think also it's, it's less the reason to have sex for women than for men in general. Like, mm-hmm. you know, guys will say to me, they just sort of think, oh, well, if you can come, that's, that's the whole thing, right? And they don't necessarily understand. There's, there could be a lot of nuance and levels to the kinds of rewards somebody gets. The reasons you'd want to be sexual. It's not just yeah. orgasm. So can you talk briefly about how women can be more engaged in sex? Because I think there becomes, I don't want to say dissociated because it's almost like pathologic when I say that. I don't mean that word. But like you're just not engaged. You're just kind of going through the motions. And then how to get out of that habit? I associate that mostly with someone who has kind of given up on their own pleasure and is kind of going through the motions for their partner's sake. So often this starts with a pretty good intention. Well, I'm not really in the mood, but they want sex. So let me show up and do that with them. And, and that can be fine sometimes. But if, if that's all you're doing over time, you're not looking for something to be engaging for yourself it's going to get less and less interesting. You're going to be less and less interested in this. Eventually, you may get resentful. Ultimately, people hit a wall. Like, I can't do this anymore, you know? And the, the metaphor I've come up with, it's sort of like if you were going on a picnic with your partner and they always packed the meal every time, you know, and all they liked was cured meats, you know? And that's all that's in the basket. And you want a salad, but you don't say anything about that. Like, you know, at first it's like, yeah, I can go on this picnic. This is fine. But, you know, after a couple of weeks of this, I'm kind of getting, there's nothing in it for me. Like, we have to put things in the picnic basket. So I think people get more engaged by figuring out what is in this for me? What do I want? What do I find pleasing? Not judged by what should be pleasing or what my partner thinks I should want out of this or what they actually want out of this. But like, how do I take something in this for myself? And that's a little bit of work, right? That's not quite a burden, but there is some responsibility for a lower desire person to be, it'll really take an active role in making sex engaging for themselves. Like you got to really pack some things in the basket and you have to try things. Yeah. You have to like go down, you have to go down a grocery store aisle that you've never been down before. Potentially. Yeah, Potentially. Right. Some people used to enjoy sex and now things have changed or maybe they never really knew what they wanted or, you know, whatever. It might take some exploring or some experimenting, or maybe it just takes dusting off some old favorites or reinventing them a little bit. Yeah. I think sometimes just taking more time. I, I don't know if you see this. It's like this, like, amazing thing that we have, we should have sex very quickly. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, and it's like, well, sometimes people need a little bit longer. Well, yeah. Especially if they don't, you know, if they're not coming in hot. Yeah. Right. Like, Like, well, here's another thing that happens early in a relationship, not always, but often there is more spontaneous desire. Both people are kind of coming in hot. It ha- it can happen more quickly, or you're into it quickly. You don't need that warm up time, and then it can feel so that and that changes. The longer we're with somebody, the older we get. The more of these stresses there are in our lives, and people aren't used to navigating the zero to thirty part of this. It's so foreign. They were so used to coming in at thirty or sixty, you know. <laughs> so they don't know what to do there, and it just feels weird. But yeah, you need probably more time and maybe different kinds of stimulation, or maybe you don't even start with touching. You need a conversation, right? You got to just get present. Whatever it is, you've got to make more space for somebody to end up getting in the mood. 
Do you see people, so in long-term relationships, you and I know in long-term relationships, that kind of like novelty is gone, right? That spontaneous desire decreases. It's well-studied. It's Esther Perel in her book, Mating in Captivity, right? Like we know that, but do you see some people not know that and then think like they fell out of love with somebody? Oh, yeah, a lot. Oh my gosh. And I tell them that, you know, I think it's Helen Fisher who did that research when she looks at people, you know, newly in love and you think about your love and your whole brain lights up, you know, and 18 months later, there's only one part of your brain lights up and it's the same place you keep your grocery list. And this is the same person that you just love so dearly, but the chemistry changes and, yeah. it re- you know, there's, you can't really fight that. It's neuroscience, people. It's okay. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just what our brain does. It's not a personality flaw. No, or a, or a mismatch. It doesn't mean you're with the wrong person. We're back to, you know, this idea of responsive desire is way more common. We move more that way the longer we're with the same person and also the more, we, the older we get. It's so normalizing for people to hear that. Yeah. It's like, I, you know, I'm picturing like people getting married and the, whoever's marrying them is like, just so you know, it's totally cool and not as spontaneous. <laughs> and they're like, what? right, right. They should get a handout, right? With some operating instructions or something. They're like, we had no idea. Yeah. Thanks for telling us. We'll try to remember this in two years. Yeah. But you think about how devastating those expectations are for people to worry that, you know, what is wrong with me? Am I with the wrong person? What does this mean for our relationship? I mean, the distress is so significant. Totally. And I think, you know, I think being, I'm a physician, so I can prescribe the new medications for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And like the way that some people talk up these meds, like it's this cure-all, like it's this Viagra. And it's truthfully not Viagra. Viagra is arousal, right? Right. Viagra is blood flow. It's not desire at all. And for the more I learn about it, I'm like, low desire is just this blanket statement for so many different things. And I'm like, I don't think low desire actually exists anymore. It's just what we're calling the complexity of all of these things. Right, right. And all the ways that somebody's desire doesn't look like it does on TV, right? As if that's a problem, as if this is something that needs a medical fix, as if this is pathological, as opposed to, no, it's systemic and plenty of it is just normal. You just have to approach sex differently. Mm -hmm. And other parts of it are related to these obstacles that really need to get addressed. Totally. Very rarely would it be physical. Right. Um, So you're talking about the top three mistakes of the lower desire person. The first one is believing you are broken. Yeah. (laughs) That doesn't help. No, it It doesn't help. It's immobilizing. If you just think you're broken, it's scary to look at this thing. It makes people avoid it. It certainly doesn't give you any sense that something could change. You're just broken. Yeah. Right. And I think for people to understand, you know, men and women, the way you think about sex and the way that you tell yourself about sex plays a huge role in sex for you. Yes. And just believing you're broken and it's take and it's believing sex is hard work is not good for sex. Right. (laughs) That's true too. Our mindset's so important. Yeah. But also believing that sex should just be easy isn't going to be helpful either because it does take some communication and some attention. It doesn't just happen naturally. Yeah. I think the new belief that everybody needs to come up with with sex is what you said earlier, which is you can't fail at sex. Yeah. That's a fantastic one. Go into the bedroom with that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Number two is wanting the partner to stop initiating. Let's talk about that, that situation. This happens all the time. Partly the higher desire person gets really tired of feeling, you know, feeling rejected. They take this personally. That's one of the problems for the higher desire person. 
they feel rejected, they feel bad, they're tired of bringing it up and getting shot down. So why don't you just let me know when you're ready? And the lower desire person is thinking, I get tired of saying no. I don't want them asking me all the time. I'm having to say no. I feel guilty about that. I can see their distress. It's It just puts pressure on me. So they both sort of will believe that if, if we just leave it up to the lower desire person, this is going to go better. But the problem is this doesn't actually reduce any of the pressure. They both just know now they're waiting for the lower desire person. So they might feel a little tiny bit of relief in the beginning, but eventually it's like they're still counting the days. They still know their partner's waiting for this. Now I'm the one that's just supposed to bring it up. It's all on me. Like it's a sort of devil's bargain. It doesn't really help. Oh, would you suggest scheduling sex then? Or what, what, what are some tips for this scenario? I have to think this is so common. Well, I think it's always best that both people share in the initiation. It should never be 100% one person. So the lower desire person has some responsibility to bring up sex and be an active participant in this. It doesn't have to be 50-50, but the higher desire person should still be speaking about their desire. And then scheduling sex, I think is one of the biggest mistakes you can make. What you do is you schedule opportunities to be sexual. You can't know if the engine's going to turn over. So if you're showing up because it's Sunday morning at nine and we're supposed to have sex, again, it might start to feel like a relief. Like, oh, I know it's coming. I can prepare myself. I can get myself in the headspace. For a week or two, that works. But eventually you start to dread this time. It's showing up on demand, you know, expecting your body to do something when you have no idea if it will or not. So it's way better to schedule time together and make it a priority and create this space in which you can be physical together and then just see what happens without an expectation. Beautiful. I think that's way more nuanced way of putting it because people are like schedule sex. But again, it's how your mindset going in, right? If you're like, crap, mm-hmm. it's Sunday already. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's not the kind of scheduled sex that people talk about when they're like, make time, set it apart, be together. Like all the good things that come with scheduled sex. But if you take it in a negative, it's going to backfire on you. Yeah. And once once it's an obligation, anything that reinforces this idea of it as an obligation is going to make it harder and harder to want sex. And again, what we're trying to do is help people want sex. (laughs) So I I think, I mean, talk about that a little bit more in our society. Maybe it's, then let me know if you see this in in same-sex couples, but I see in heterosexual couples a lot, the woman's like, well, it's just my job to have sex with him. What does that do to a sex life? It's going to kill it because obligation is just not sustainable. You can't do that. You know, people can do that for varying amounts of time and sort of feel okay about it, but it starts to feel worse and worse and worse. You start to get resentful. It kills your own desire. You stop putting anything in the picnic basket for yourself. Like this whole thing inevitably, or at least what I see for people looking for help is they've hit a wall and they literally can't do it anymore. And then they're sort of in crisis mode. Like I can't show up like this anymore. I've been sort of throwing myself under the bus. I think people go into that very well-meaning, right? Like, here I am still having sex. Right, right. I know it matters to you and I'm really trying to show up. And like at first... you And really, I love you, so here I am. Yeah, yeah. And you can do that sometimes and feel good about it and not have it be a problem. It's just if that's all it is over time, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. I think that's really important what you just said on like, sometimes it's perfectly okay just to like have sex because you want to be close, but you're not super interested in getting any, but you know, they want it. And like, that's fine sex to be having. But that if that's the only thing on the menu, that's where it becomes a problem. Right. Right. Super nuanced. Yeah. Jessa Zimmerman, queen of nuance. (laughs) So good. Okay. Number three in the top three mistakes of the low desire person, thinking that it's all or nothing. Yeah. So this is, is back to the idea that sex 
we're either having sex or we're not having sex. We have to finish what we start. Sex is a particular thing, whether that's penis and vagina or it's about orgasm or whatever. Like the way I talk about this in my free training, I've got this picture of this football field. Like a lot of people treat sex as we've got to cross the goal line. We are marching down the field literally, linearly until we hit the goal line. And there's, it's outcome-based. We either score or we don't score. Like that's how sex is. And that's way too big a commitment for someone who's not feeling any desire right now. So what'll happen is like, that just seems way too far away. I can't even imagine getting there. So let's not even start. I can't. So they'll start saying no, unless they're sure they can do the whole thing. And so that's becomes less and less frequent, right? I can't imagine climbing that whole mountain. So I can't even take a step. So no. So instead, what we need is this whole maybe idea that sex can be anything. All of it is fun and connecting. And we just get to start and it's not like, oh, we have to hit a field goal. It's more like a playground. I mean, this is a metaphor I use with people a lot. Sex is like going to the playground. It's just the outing that counts. It doesn't matter what we do when we're there. It doesn't mean we have to go down the slide. It doesn't mean we have this progression from this to this to this. We show up, we play, we get inspired in the moment. We do what, you know, what comes to us when we're there and enjoying ourselves. We stay as long as we want. And that whole thing is a win. So if sex Beautiful. is more like that, you know, first of all, you can't fail again, but it also means it's easy to go to the playground because I'm not thinking about a big hike down the field. I'm just thinking about sitting on the swing for now. So what do you, how do you, I love that. How do you talk to people? I was stereotypically a woman who's like, it takes too long for me to have sex. I think number one, nobody ever taught them how long it takes or number two, (laughs) their partner comes in a very short period of time. So they think that's normal. Right. 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 So what are some tips for a woman who's like, ah, it just takes forever. Like, should she pre-party? What well, should she I mean, do? She, yeah, you can pre-party, but I think to give yourself permission to just enjoy what's happening, you know, first of all, that worry about how long is it taking? Am I responding? Am I, you know, that's going to make it take longer. That's a buzzkill, right? That's not helping you. I think there's a certain buying into I'm not worth this or I'm a burden or something like that, which we have to shed. <laughs> or he's going to think I take too long. Yeah, yeah. And maybe yeah. they've even said that. Thinking about what other people are thinking during sex is a buzzkill. Yeah, yeah. And that you're supposed to live up to some ideal or some expectation or some idea that should happen really fast or I'm not worth taking longer. I don't want to put them out. I don't want to burden them. No, take up some space. For, you know, prioritize your own pleasure. Like being selfish is such an important part of good sex. Yeah. And then it also doesn't have to get to whatever they're thinking takes so long every time. It's not like you have to have an orgasm if you don't want one. You know, it doesn't have to be, it's not all or nothing. It doesn't have to be in a particular thing. Just go in and start to play and have fun and think about what you want and advocate for that and stay as long as you want to stay. I love that. I, I mean, I think so many women, men too, but live in this like, we have checklists and our job and we are just kind of in this frontal lobe thing. And to, to be really like turn that off to get into the sexual zone, which doesn't play by the rules of Western society. Yeah. And it takes some practice to shift those gears and to let go and to be present. Totally. So how do you create a life that has, uh, or a sex life that has zero stress? <laughs> <If they're laughs> well, like, uh, that, that seems amazing. Sign me up. How do you do that? 
I mean, I guess the way I approach this in the book that's then become this online course is that first we have to change the thinking. We really have to change. We have to understand how desire works, how sex works, wrap your idea, your head around this idea of sex like a playground, really challenges the expectations that we have brought into it and be open and realize, okay, this is how sex really works. That's a lot of it. Then we have to take sort of stock of what we've actually been doing in our sex life with our partner and in our relationship. Like what, what role have I had? What do I need to change and shout in terms of how I'm behaving or what I've brought to this? Some of it's my thinking, but some of it's going to be my actions and the way we've sort of done this dance around sex or not sex. Then I think you just have to put it into practice. You, you know, one thing is my clients don't change because we sit and talk on the couch. Like that helps, but they have to go do things differently. Change involves behavior change. So you have to go do things that allow you to practice these ideas and have experiences, which maybe at first are a little challenging, but ultimately show you, oh, this really works. Like there is no bad outcome. There is no failure. I really can think about myself. I really can let go of an outcome or a a goal. We really can approach sex differently. I really can ask for what I want. I really can say no if I need to say no. Like all of these things you have to, you have to integrate until it's like part of your new reality around sex. And I think, the, I mean, the cool thing that people don't realize and, and just how learning works, right, is that it's not actually the end point of zero stress sex. It's who you get to become on the journey to there. Whereas yeah. like, that's where all the magic happens. Right. But once you can't fail, once you really get that, then there is no stress. Ah, you make so. it sound so easy. People, go, go read her book. <laughs> links and links comment. Oh, that's awesome. Anything else you want to tell our, our women, our men, anybody who, any topic we missed that's big time, that's super important or you see a lot? I guess what I want to say is if you have bigger issues in your relationship, <laughs> if there's, you know, what Gottman would call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Contempt, ill will, like disrespect. If there's not, I mean, those aren't their, his four. If you're having bigger issues that mean you don't even really want to have sex with your partner or there's a power dynamic that is unsafe or it just doesn't feel good, whatever. You know, get the help with that. The sooner you get help, because that's a serious obstacle and it should be. So address the stuff going on in your relationship. But as long as your relationship really is based in goodwill and love and respect and friendship, this can get better. I mean, it totally can get better. And I think people have so much worry and fear about it and they feel so afraid and it feels so heavy and it feels so hopeless. They can't see the way out of that, but you really can shift this. Beautiful. I love it. Well, thank you so much for recording this podcast. I think people are going to get a lot out of it and I'll put your, oh, tell us where we can find you on Instagram because you got lots of cool videos on Instagram. Yeah. Intimacy with ease at intimacy with ease or go to the website, intimacywithease.com. Love it. Thank you so much for being with us today.